This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, thank you, Paul and Susan, for passing out um, what probably looks like a befuddling source sheet. Um, if you don't have a source sheet, maybe just raise your hand and hopefully someone on our team can come around and pass those out. I figure that um, the Shabbat after Thanksgiving is a good time for a befuddling source sheet. So hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense as we work our way through it this morning. In the, in the 1960s, there was a French-Bulgarian literary critic, Yulia Kristeva, who coined the term intertextuality, referring to the way that a text's meaning can be shaped by another text. Right? Often, the way it'll work is that narratives will borrow each other's language and themes, adding a layer of meaning to each story by grafting one text onto another. Kristeva wrote, every text is an absorption and transformation of another text. Now, the term might be relatively new, but this phenomenon has been central for a very long time to the Jewish approach to textual interpretation. Essentially, our way of reading a text is to treat any word in our sacred literature, any verse, character, pattern, theme, as a potential hyperlink to another text that shares that feature. And sometimes it feels very random, right? But often drawing the line of connection, it feels like to the learner, it feels like discovering this secret conversation that's been living in the text. In building the bridge between the texts, both stories then take on these new dimensions and new meanings, right? They leave us with new questions. And often, the texts that seemingly have something to say to each other aren't the ones that you'd expect to be conversing, which is certainly how I felt this week when I opened the Parsha and found myself instead swimming in the story of Purim in Migilat Esther. All right, so here's my claim, and I'll be eager to hear after services if you buy it or not. All right, number one. The story of Esther and Mordechai intentionally borrows core plot features, key phrases, and even characters from the story of Jacob, Esav, and the Stolen Blessing. Number two, in doing so, it sharpens the anguish and moral responsibility we ought to feel about Esav's fate in this week's Parsha. All right, you ready? You with me? Okay. All right, so on, um, we're not going to go through every last text word for word, but looking now at the first pair of texts, the ones I've labeled concealed identity. All right, so let's refresh ourselves a little bit on the background of this story. Isaac's life is coming to an end. He asks his oldest son, Esav, to hunt and bring him some meat. And when he returns, he'll give him the firstborn blessing. 
But meanwhile, Rebecca hatches this plan to deceive her mostly blind husband and sub in Jacob instead to get the blessing. So as you can see in the first text, she dresses him up, makes him hairy so that he feels and smells like Esau, right? So that he doesn't look like himself anymore. And she gives him this prepared dish to give his father. So crucial to the success of this plan is concealing his true identity. Concealing his true identity, hyperlink to Esther, who is instructed by Mordechai to do what? To keep quiet about her Jewish identity out of fear that disclosing it would prevent her from becoming queen. So at this point in the story, in chapter four, where the second of the two Esther texts comes, King Ahasuerus still doesn't know that she's Jewish. And he's already signed the edict enabling Haman to pursue his genocidal plans against the Jews. So what happens? In the peak moment of the Megillah, at Mordechai's behest, Jewish identity concealed, she dresses in her royal apparel and at great risk to herself enters the king's throne uninvited. I believe we're seeing a clear echo in Esther of the Jacob story, focused on the power and plot dynamics in each story. The conversational bridge, it's being built. In each text, Jacob or Esther are guided by a parent figure to conceal their identities in order to get into a position of proximity to get something they need from the character with power. Number two, the second pair of texts addresses what I'm gonna call the irrevocability hyperlink. All right, when Esau returns from the hunt, ready to receive his father's blessing, the Torah says, Isaac was seized with this terrible trembling. He had realized what had happened. He realized the deception. And he says to Esav, I blessed him. I blessed Jacob already. Now he must remain blessed. When Esav heard his father's words, he said, bless me too, father. But Isaac answered, but I have made him master over you. I have given him all his brothers for servants and sustained him with grain and wine. What then can I still do for you, my son? And Esav said to his father, have you but one blessing, father? Bless me too, father. All right, in Isaac's understanding, once the firstborn blessing has been given, that's it. It can't be revoked. It can't be given again. What's done is done. And I can only give you, Esau, a secondary blessing. All right, we're going to return to this moment in a bit. But just for now, okay, focus. Notice the theme of the irrevocable statement because Esther too has that feature. Once Haman's plot has been revealed to Ahasuerus, you'd think he would reverse course on the edict he had signed calling for the genocide of the Jews. But apparently, once the edict has been signed and sealed, it can't be reversed and torn up. So instead, as you see in chapter eight, we're now on the backside of your source sheet, he has to sign a new edict 
that gives the Jews essentially the permission to fight back. Concealed identities, blessings slash edicts that shouldn't hold but must remain. The third grouping of texts, the one I've titled here Descendants, the characters of these two stories are explicitly connected through genealogy. Haman is introduced in Megillat Esther as Ha'agagi, the Agagite. That's important information because Agag in the book of Samuel is the king of Amalek. And Amalek in the Torah are presented as the eternal enemy of the Jewish people. They attacked us from behind in the wilderness. The Torah says explicitly to blot out their memory. That's how evil and dangerous they are. But where do they come from? What's Amalek's origin story? Look now at the text, Genesis 36, 12. Timnah was a concubine of Esav's son, Eliphaz. She gave birth to Amalek. Amalek is Esav's grandson. And by extension, there is a direct genealogical line from Esav, grandfather of Amalek, to Haman, descendant of Amalek. Isn't that incredible? I mean, if only we had more time in Hebrew school, I think we'd devote a whole year just to genealogy, and then they'd all drop out. Okay, so when we encounter Haman in the Purim story, I believe the bridge to Esav is getting a little bit stronger. Now here's where the connections shift from being simply echoes to adding a moral layer. In the Torah, Timnah gets one verse. You just saw it. It's thrilling. Right? Concubine to Esav's son, mother of Amalek. But the rabbis in the Talmud spin for her out of nowhere this incredible backstory. Look at the text titled Sanhedrin 99b. Timnah sought to convert she came before Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and they did not accept her. She went and became a concubine of Eliphaz, son of Esav. Ultimately, Amalek, son of Eliphaz, emerged from her, and that tribe afflicted the Jewish people. What is the reason that the Jewish people were punished? By suffering at the hand of Amalek? Talmud's answer is due to the fact that they should not have rejected her when she sought to convert. Now, we don't know. The Talmud doesn't tell us why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob rejected her. It's strange, frankly. Abraham is the man who is described as converting many people on his journey. Right? But more than that, the Talmud is harshly condemning the patriarchs. It doesn't get much stronger than to say, had you acted differently... There would be no eternal enemy for your descendants. Someone came to you wanting to be embraced and you rejected her. Why wasn't our tent big enough for her? Why wasn't our love expansive enough to take her in? Hold on to that. Because the fourth 
and final pair of text is the strongest connection between these two stories. This is the echo that got me started on this whole goose chase in the first place. Bottom of the backside of the page. Genesis 27, 34. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst into great and bitter sobbing. Vayitzak tz'aka gedola umara. And said to his father, bless me too, father. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordechai learned all that had happened, Mordechai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went through the city and he burst into a great and bitter sobbing. Vayizak ze'aka gedola umara. Vayizak ze'aka gedola umara. Vayizak ze'aka gedola umara. This is a direct quotation. The bridge has been built, and now we're meant to cross it. That's the move of intertextuality, the collapsing of these two stories into one. So here's the question I want us to consider. Why is Mordechai crying? Why is Mordechai crying? Okay, the obvious textual answer is for the edict decreed against the Jews of his time. Haman had successfully leveraged his political power into an edict that would violently animate his grudge against the Jewish people. That's a clear reason to cry bitterly. But the intertextual answer is so much deeper. Mordechai is crying because for the first time, he fully understands the tragedy of Esau's journey. He understands the implications of Esau's pain. I imagine in this moment, Mordechai is catapulted back to this pivotal scene where Esau bursts into tears, this crucial turning point of a son realizing that his father did not have a blessing of equal love for him in perhaps the most heartbreaking words of the Torah, Esav says, Don't you have a blessing for me too, Abba? When Isaac is unable to respond with a blessing of equal love, Esav learns in this moment that love is a scarce commodity. He internalized that the way love works is that once it's given away, less remains for those who follow. Mordechai's crying intensifies as his mind races to the story of Timnah, who wanted to find a way into the covenant but is rejected without reason. Our tent isn't large enough for you. Our love isn't big enough for you, they said while shutting the door in her face. So she left and tied her fate to Esav's line, becoming the mother of Amalek, the ancestor of this wicked man, Haman, who wants you, Mordechai, and your family dead. He realizes that Haman ultimately suffers from the same pathology that his great-great-great-great-grandfather Esav learned, a worldview that there are limited ways to love. Haman believes in fact, that there's only one way to be Persian, 
right? There's no room in the kingdom for the Jews, no acceptance of our distinct customs in particular ways. Love is scarce. You're either in the story or you're exiled from it. He's sobbing because this is what's become of Esau's story. These are the implications of being taught that there's only so much love to go around. Ultimately, hatred and xenophobia, hatred and xenophobia are the offspring of scarce love. When someone believes that their story, their identity, their lifestyle is threatened by another human being expressing and receiving love, they've fundamentally misunderstood the way love ought to exist in this world. When a 22-year-old walks into Club Q and murders five beautiful souls and wounds another dozen while they're dancing in their second home full of chosen family, we too burst into great and bitter sobbing. A definition of love that isn't big enough to include the beautiful ways LGBTQ folks love each other is a broken definition. Here's the next intertext that needs to be whispered into Yitzchak's ears, stated clearly to Timna and shouted to Haman. That's not how love works. The more we love, the more we have capacity to love. Love is like a candle, able to pass its flame from one wick to the next, never diminishing the initial flame. The world glows when we love this way. Love is never diminished by giving it away. It's only strengthened. Double your love for the sake of anyone who ever thought there wasn't enough love in the world for them. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.